Welcome everybody to the first episode of the Making Shift Happen podcast, the podcast all about making work more human. My name is Jay Chopra and I'm the Managing Director and Co-Founder of Making Shift Happen, a boutique organizational development consultancy working internationally with blue chip clients. In our episodes, we want to bring current issues in the organizational development space to life and invite experts in the field onto the show to discuss their tips and tricks to help you make work more human. And today, my guest is Richard Hogan. He's from Cork, like myself. Richard, you might introduce yourself, please. Thanks, Jay. It's a great honor to be on the maiden voyage of this uh, podcast. So um, I'm a systemically trained family psychotherapist. I'm the clinical director of Therapy Institute in Dublin. And um, I write for the Irish Examiner every Thursday about things that I see coming up in society, but also about organizational science, because I'm a systems consultant and uh, I co-authored with Dr. Paul Gibson um, a neurological response to uh, managing uh, leaders and, and employees called the Metis program. So I, I do a lot of work in the corporate space. And I help other organizations as well with, with different aspects of, uh, you know, things that are coming up from the disruption of, say, COVID and on, on, on all that's kind of impacted organizations over the last 12 to 16 months. So it's a great honor to be here, Jane, and, and to, to see where this conversation goes. I'm really looking forward to it. Two Cork men sitting down having a chat. What could go wrong? What could go wrong? Exactly. As we've got we've got four chips between us, Richard, don't we? For, for, pe- <laughs> for people that don't know it. Uh, we say that we're so balanced in Cork that, you know, we've got a chip, a chip on each shoulder, isn't it? So that, <laughs> so that's the way. What, what can go wrong? And, and one Cork man's in, in Middleton right now, myself uh, in Cork. And uh, Richard, you're in Seattle at the moment, aren't you as well? Yeah, I'm in Seattle at the moment. I'm uh, over here in a Fulbright scholarship doing work on um, inclusion uh, in schools, in Irish and American schools, how to better promote inclusion. And I suppose what we're talking about when we talk about trust, we're looking at the idea of inclusion. So hopefully some of that perspective and some of the research that I've carried out over the last number of weeks as I'm here in Seattle might feed into this conversation. Brilliant, brilliant. Oh, that's fantastic, Richard. And I think inclusion as well is something that's very close to my own heart, being half Irish and half Indian or, or Indian, yeah. as they say, uh, and having grown up in sort of a, a homogeneous enough society in Ireland, I think yeah. in the 70s and 80s. So I think inclusion is a passion that brings both of us together as well, Richard. And for sure, I, I think you're right. I think there's a massive connection there with trust as well, you know, so it'll be interesting. So, so yeah, that, that's a, that's a good introduction, I think, to what we're going to talk about today. And what we really want to talk about is the psychology of trust in hybrid work environments. So first question might be, what is a hybrid work environment? Yeah, thanks, Jay. That's a, that's the, it's the real buzzword. I think hybrid, isn't it? It's the, it's the word of the, of the moment. Um, I you know, out of this disruption, out of all disruption, anyone who works in organizations and understands organizational science, you know, I did a four-year master's in systems theory. Anyone who understands, uh, you know, systems and how they operate will know that disruption reorientates the system so that it falls into a homeostasis, like a balance. It, it falls into a new balance. And out of this disruption of the, of the you know, coronavirus, the novel coronavirus that's, you know, in this global pandemic has come the shift in how we think about the work that we do. It was coming anyway, Jay. I mean, this was coming down the line anyway. You know, we, we can all see these slow moves, you know, people like Elon Musk, you know, and these guys, these kind of like outliers in society are telling us and they're geniuses, you know, this is where we're going here. We're, we're going down this road here. And, and it, it's really important that we understand that hybrid means like, you know, the, the combination of working in a space that's connected with your colleagues, but also working at home that's connected with your family. And so it's those, it's, it's that new approach. And I suppose we're, that was about 50 years down the line. And the, you know, the COVID-19 has catapulted us into that space very quickly. And that's, that's probably the silver lining out of all this, that, you know, true disruption change comes really quickly because we have to, we have to, you know, we have to change quickly because, you know, to, to survive and work, you have to be malleable because the landscape is constantly changing. But like, I mean, in the last 16 months, it just irrevocably changed. No, absolutely. And as you say, we were catapulted, we were catapulted into the future of work, really, yeah. weren't we? Uh, and, and we just had to embrace that change. I yeah, know no, for sure. And I guess I guess in the corporate world or in the business world, Richard, you know, trust is seen as this like intangible, fuzzy concept and sometimes like a little bit like magic dust, you know, but like, like to get a bit more tangible. How would you define trust, Richard? Like what, 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 what's a useful way to define trust to kind of make it a little bit more tangible? Well, when you think about it, not even in a, in a, in a kind of a corporate sense, just as human beings, we have to trust each other all the time. And it's an incredible leap of courage and faith, isn't it? And, you know, when you walk down the street and you see someone coming towards you, you have to kind of make it a, a judgment in your, in your head that this person is socialized enough that they're not going to assault me or they're not going to yes. attack me. You know, when, when I came to Seattle, I had to, you know, 
pay a considerable amount of money for Airbnb. And, you know, that's a, I was thinking that that's an incredible amount of trust over the internet to send thousands of dollars to somebody you've never met before. And we're always doing, we're, we're doing, we trust our banks and we trust, we have to have trusts. And it, it, it does take a lot of courage to trust people. And I, I work a lot, let's say, um, with couples when trust break, breaks down. Yes. And it is one of the most striking psychological experiences that we can experience as humans when somebody, let's say, launches out an affair and all of a sudden, with the person that we've trusted for 20 years, that's that's eroded. That That is a very striking and jarring thing for someone to experience. And you bring into question all your life about, did I, was it, did I ever see this stuff? How did I miss it? And you start to internalize it. So trusting someone is a really important thing. And I think what I would say about all of this, you know, I think organizations are beginning to understand that. Um, and I think it's only beginning now to understand that an employee-centric uh, environment where they trust the management and they trust the environment that they're working in is essential for high performance and high productivity and high and a very good quality of product that's been that's been produced. Um, when when you don't trust your the neurological you know neuroscience would show us that your brain will release cortisol. You yes. you will you know you will make mistakes. You will be less likely to be rested. You will be constantly thinking about what your 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 leader thinks of you, and so you get distracted from what's really important. So trust, as I see it, it's not a fuzzy, intangible thing. Trust is about seeing that your leader is vulnerable also and seeing that your leader is a, is a, is a real person and that they're not conditional in their leadership and that there's room for you to you know, get things wrong at times. I think trust is a, a really, it's, it's something that you can be really intentional about as a leader to bring into your organization. And I think when people experience as employees a lack of trust with their leader, I think it changes the the environment. And I think if if it's there and if if it's present, you know, if it's very present, I think people think about a strategy out of the organization. And I would think a lot of the time, you know, organizations lose incredibly important employees because there's a lack of trust. And you'd have to look at that and say, well, what, what causes a lack of trust? And I would say it's because the leader probably doesn't understand um you know the the environment they probably don't feel they can't trust the people above them and so they're constantly swimming and, and, and kind of trying to you know maintain their own equilibrium and so they're all over the place themselves and then that's been seen by the employees and then they they can't trust their leader and it just filters all the way down and it creates a very unhappy environment for everybody so trust i think it's a it's not a fuzzy word it's not a soft thing it's a it's your heart it's a really hard spot it's the hard skill that we need to that we need to engender in our organizations yeah absolutely so it's it's almost like there's a trust vacuum in in, in many organizational cultures just just listening to you there richard as well and and i suppose there's an equation called the trust equation right that says trust equals credibility plus reliability plus connection divided by self interest yeah so obviously there's a lot of, sometimes in organizations, there's a lot of self-interest because we might have career ambitions, status, ego, et cetera. Like how does that equation fit together with what you were saying around vulnerability? Yeah, well, I, I think if you look at Gallup's meta-analysis of decades of data, right, it shows that, you know, high engagement is defined as strong connection with others and work colleagues. Now that's, that's years of data being gathered. And yeah. so being vulnerable is... Uh, people often think that being vulnerable is um, a soft, a soft skill, you know, and it, it's 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 weakness. People think that's the misconception about vulnerability is that it's weakness is actually your strength. And that part there that, you know, what Gallup's re research produced there. And they said the first thing is like that this produces, you know, strong connection that with one's colleagues. Now, how do you connect with people, Jay? Yes, that's true. You know, vulnerability. That's true. Seeing that you're a real, you're authentic, and you, you know, there's a, you're, you're genuine. When, when that's, when that's missing, I think in an organization, that creates mist, mistrust, you know, and that, that, that creates a sense of that I can't trust this person because, you know, they're, they're, they've got a facade up here. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're presenting a faux person, and it can happen so easily. And I think. When you're vulnerable, I mean, you're not going to work telling everyone what's going on in your life. And, you know, it's not that, but it's that you're open to, you know, you're genuine, you're authentic, you're open about yourself. And that when you get things wrong, you put your hand up and you say, look, I got that wrong. And that's a, that creates trust. And, and that's what, when you, I mean, it's such an important thing to, to look at as a leader. Because I, I do think there's a real error in our thinking about vulnerability, that it's a weakness. And it's, it's really not a weakness. It's how we connect with each other. 
yeah. when we see a shared experience, when we sh when we see somebody navigating something in an authentic way, that gives us a sense that we can trust somebody because they're real. Yeah, I think that vulnerability is uh, is is absolute is absolutely critical. And I mean, we often say when we're working with our clients, we often say that you know, if everybody learned how to have you know, if people in organizations learned how to have adult ad to adult conversations in a respectful, authentic way. We'd often, we often said people, then we'd be out of a job as organizational <laughs> development consultants, you know, and it, like, so, so what are some of the things we have to lean into or, you know, how can we move outside our comfort zones to, to be a bit more vulnerable? Like, how do you, how do you do it? If you're kind of like, you know, let's just say, for example, oh, you're, you're a guy and you've got ambition and you've a career or you're a very ambitious female. So how do you get the balance between that soft and strong? I think, I think, first of all, you know, I, I do, I do a lot of talks, you know, in the corporate space and I have this Metis program. And the first day of that is we talk, I start off and I, I tell something about my, my life. That's kind of very personal to me. Right. And I, I, I tell a very personal story about something from my life. And then I go, we go around and we, we all tell something personal about our lives. Right. And in those moments, incredible connections are made. And I'd hear them at coffee kind of going, geez, I never knew that we've worked together for 10 years and I never knew you had that experience, you know? And, and, and I can hear them kind of going, how do we, how do, how, how haven't we talked about this stuff? Yes. Right. Yes. And it's very intentional on, my, on, on our part, you know, to open up, you know, because we are hardwired as a species. We're mammals. We're designed to be connected to each other. I mean, when we connect, oxytocin gets released. That makes us trust each other, right? And so we are we are looking for that. It's not like we're looking to disconnect. We are looking to be connected to each other. It's part of our evolutionary past. To be outside our tribe would have meant certain death. You know, when we were starting off on this human journey, if we weren't connected to each other, it would have meant we wouldn't have been able to survive, right? Yes. And so there's an alarm system going off in our brain all the time, a part of the brain that fires. And when you put your hand in the, the pot, you don't analyze that's hot. You just push it back it goes straight back because there's a short circuit right to your brain to tell you that's painful when you hit your hand with a hammer you're, you're not kind of going i think that might have been painful that there's a part of the dorsal portion of the anterior cingulate cortex fires right and research would show us and science would show us and neuroscience would show us and when we're excluded when we're not a part of a group that fires and so when we connect then something really wonderful happens and we feel like we can trust people and i think you're asking how do you get that balance right as a psychotherapist you know, someone working with families and teenagers and, and you know, a broad spectrum of, of clients. A, a huge part of being, I think, effective as a psychotherapist is that you're authentic and yeah. that you're genuine and that you're present and, and that you're listening to people and, and that a bit of you is in this conversation too, that you're not just a bit of theory trying to analyze what's going on and trying to figure out you're actually a human being present in the, in the conversation. And people would often say to me over the years, I never get really congratulated or someone doesn't come to me and say, you know, the, you know, you know, that intervention you did that really helped me. But what people might say to me is that over the years, they'd say to me, you were really present in that conversation. You know, and I just want to thank you for being, for yes. being, I really felt that you, you know, you, you kind of heard us as a family yes. and that's just been present with people. And I think, I think there is a bit of a, a again, an error in our thinking that to be ambitious, you have to be this ruthless you know, killer type of thing. And, the, and you have to step on people and you have to, you know, get over them and stab them in the back. And just, I think that kind of a life leads to being excluded. Yeah. It leads to that feeling of like, you know, eventually when you hit 40 or 45, 47 is our most unhappy years. I think you look back and you think, what, you know, what have I actually done here that's meaningful? And I think when we're connected to our employees and we're connected to our office and we're connected to the, the ethics of where we work and we feel that they are all congruent with who we are in the world, then we have a sense of meaning, I think. And so I think, um, I think, I think we have to show, this is the reality of it, I think, we have to show through our leadership how you are authentic and vulnerable and genuine and get things done but also have those traits and those attributes as well. It filters down. I mean, if we ever wanted a, you know, a lesson about what happens with leadership, how it filters into society, we just have to look at the year, the euros and the abuse that the, you know, Rashford got after they missed the penalty, you know, when they were taking a knee and, you know, the home secretary said, it's just gesture politics. I mean, that's just, that's feeding into the idea of, you know, that it's okay to launch this racist ideas, you know, and it's, it's, it's systemic then, you know, and you can turn around and go, well, these guys were terrible to say that about the Well, yeah, of course it's apparent, but the bigger question is the systems here. How is it that they felt okay to say that? And it's really important that in an organization that you understand as a leader, you are setting the culture here, but that once 
once you set the culture, it's going to be kind of like, you know, at bottom up and top down. It's not just coming down from you. Once you set the culture correctly, people will be will feel free to bring a bit of their own culture into it. Yeah, it's almost giving themselves a little bit of air cover by yeah. being vulnerable and 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 by by putting yourself out there a little bit and being a bit more authentic, then it makes it okay. And it's mm. it's that sort of mimicry, isn't it? That monkey see, monkey do type, yeah. type thing as well. And no, look, I mean, so based on what you were saying there as well about the oxytocin, uh, Richard, would it be fair to say so that in virtual work environments and and the hybrid one that we're moving into, that you know we need to be even more conscious about building connection and trust. I do know I was reading an article there last week, and it was researched on three thousand employees, right? And they were saying that 50% of those employees have burned out mm. since COVID started, mm. right? So is it because we don't have these sort of neurobiological uh, lubricants to make us feel connected? And has that been part of the challenge there? And will it challenge us moving forward? Yeah, it's, 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 I think that's the rub of it. You know, that, that therein lies the rub, as Hamlet would say. Um, yes. I, I think it's a it's a really important thing for organisations to think about. I think to to think that we we have done work now for you know as long as we've been here you know the last hundred years we've done that work thing in the office and all that and going in and out and now we we did uh, you know at home working for the last sixteen months and now let's just do a hybrid and I think if we're going to go that's going to be a really difficult situation for for colleagues and for for the organisation. I think we have to be really direct and intentional about how we do this because you're dead right um of course there was burnout over the last 16 months but i think there was incredible pressures placed on people i think probably a, a bit of what caused the burnout is that there's probably an inherent bias before um covid around working from home and so people felt that they had to you know this idea of presenteeism they had to be online all the time i felt it myself i, I was getting text messages from my from from you know my clinic about a half ten at night 11 o'clock you're going to bed and you're you're still dealing with things from the office you know and i think i think that kind of that mentality has to shift i think i think it probably has because you know, we, we've realized that you can do the work from home. You can, you know, so there's an inherent bias or a presupposition that if you're working from home, you're just dossing, right? That's like, right. You know, that you just, you're just, you're sitting there on the couch watching Judge Judy while you're flicking through your thing, whatever. But I, I think there's, there's, there's a load of, um, I think there's a potentially a load of, uh, you know, landmines waiting for us. And I think the idea of flexibility in work is what we say about hybrid. And I think what's going to happen here very quickly is that that flexibility is going to become inflexible. And so it's, you know, so when you, when you start to moon over your day into your work, so like, you know, I have to go and collect the kids at 10 o'clock. So I'm going to work from like eight to nine, 10 o'clock and then collect the kids. And I can't collect the kids and be on a call. Right. So I can't be down at the schoolyard to collect the kids. So when, when we're, when we're like, you know, enmeshing our days activities in with our work, there's going to be an inflexibility. So to think about being really flexible in work and working from home as this utopia, I think is a, a probably a myopic lens on it. I think it's a, it's going to be, it's going to have to be something that's really thought out. But also I think, Jay, what causes burnout, what causes huge burnout, if you analyze burnout, I've read a lot about burnout and, uh, and analyzed a lot of it. It's when our competencies are pushed and we feel we don't have, you know, the, the skills, the resources to meet the demands that's been placed yes. on us. And the demands of the last 16 months have been incredible, obviously, at home, if you're if you're in a relationship and if you've got kids and, you know, all of that, all of that the stuff there that we had to manage in homeschool and on top of everything else in our working life and then go into this new way of working. But I think it's what, what can really happen here that I'd see as a as a warning to people out there who are managers and to employees is that, um, you know, we might work from home whatever day we decide to work from home there has to be a, it has to be choreographed very well because yeah. if you're working from home and there's a meeting going on in the office yes so what can happen here very quickly this is human nature you know we, we we love hierarchy we love people who are above us and we love to try to get there and that's just a part of being a human being and uh, you know homo sapien so you might see some young, younger workers going into the office space more because they believe that gives them leverage over the people that are at home and the people at home can see these guys or girls in the in the, when i say guys i mean plural so as, as people uh, yes. you know they can see their employees you know at the meetings and the the chats beforehand and the chats afterwards and then they're cut off from the meeting and there's a real sense for that what we talked about there feeling excluded and when you yeah. feel excluded then you start to ruminate 
And when you start to ruminate, you start to lose sleep and you're deprived of your sleep and you're thinking about, am I losing my, my position here, my relevance in this workspace? I have to go to work. And all of a sudden then, you know, you're, you're finding that you're fighting for more to get into work more means that you're getting leverage with your boss. And, and it's really important that leaders point that out very clearly and are very clear in the communication that this is the day that you have to do your, you know, be at home and this is the day that we're going to be in the office and that it's really well choreographed because the potential for landmines is massive. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And that, that point you're bringing up around proximity bias really, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know what I mean? If you're closer, if you're closer to the boss, you know, and even subconsciously, I think it's a watch out for the leaders as well, that people that are closer can all of a sudden become your like sort of closest advisors and you start, you know, you start getting all repercussions of that proximity bias, like, favoritism etc etc so i do think there's a lot more in there there are a lot more barriers uh richard in the in the hybrid world to inclusion actually like yeah. that's where the way the conversations exactly like, hard enough as it is as, as we both know from what you're studying and my own life experiences and from the organization we worked in but now in this hybrid world inclusion's even even a trickier sport really isn't it it is and um, where i where i've gone in my research is inclusion starts from within right so and it starts from the biases and prejudices that you hold so you know we can t- we can talk about buzzwords like inclusion but if i think that you know let's say indian people are a particular thing and you're in my classroom you know no matter what we talk about inclusion i'm going to exclude you i'm going to have very negative thoughts about you and your background and so again and it's really important that organization leaders hear this that if you have a bias around you know working at home it's going to influence how you how you manage and how you deal with the people who are working from home and how you deal with the yes. proximity bias you know people who are inside the, your space and right next to you you know how how you manage that it's going to be a really important part and i think is what needs to happen is to have a look at that bias first of all what you think about working from home before you ever start to draft up a policy as, as an organization around when are we going to how how are we going to do this thing you no know, that's a great point it's it's almost like sort of doing some sort of an assessment of, of the leaders or the leadership team yeah, and an assessment of their their own biases yeah. it's a good time to have that look in the mirror and then start to kind of say okay what are the specific things i might need to push through or change my perception on based on on that analysis yeah and you know what i often what i often do when i'm when i'm doing this kind of work with organizations is i i i, I, I use a technique from narrative therapy it's called externalizing so i'd externalize the prejudice i pull it out and i interview it and the person would first of all you know i'm talking to someone i'd say you know what, what do you think is a bias that might hold you back here restrict you and they say no no i have no i have no bias or prejudices and i'd say well it's actually impossible to be sitting here at 50 years of age and not to have a bias or prejudice you know it's impossible at four years of age not to have a bias or prejudice not to mind you know for 46 other years on top of that and so that when they finally feel okay maybe it's okay to have a bias i'm saying of course it's okay to have a bias what we must always do is be critical of it and listen to it and hear it and see where it comes from and i externalize it and i interview it and it's a really striking moment for them to to see how this thing has been maneuvering them and pushing them they're like I, and, and, and i often hear this you know god now jesus now I realize why that particular person really got to me and why yeah. I had such a negative reaction to them. Yeah, the trigger, like the yeah. sort of trigger. Exactly. Yeah, it's, in, it's interesting. I, no, actually, that, now that you mentioned that, Richard, it, it makes me think about my own experience as well in two, in two ways. And we might build this out a bit more as well, because I think where we're going to is that it's actually um, that piece around inclusion and understanding our biases is mm. central to trust, really. Because if we're biased... If we're biased against something, we're not going to be able to know them or, or trust it, really, are we? So We won't trust it. We can't trust it. No, we can't trust it. And I was just thinking, my own experience is funny because, like, as you know, as you alluded to, I'm, and I said earlier, I'm half Irish, half Indian, right? And yeah, even today, if I go into a shop in Ireland, right? And, you know, I've like yourself, I've worked all over the world and different bits like that, right? If I go into a shop in Ireland today and they say there's a, somebody who's 100% Irish working behind the counter, mm-hmm. You know, they still put their hair out to me. You know, it's almost like a subconscious thing that, like, he looks a bit different, so he's probably going to have a foreign accent. Yeah. And I can see it, right? I'm almost so, so like tuned into it, and I, and then I just kind of say, "Well, how's how's it going?" You know, and I kind of go, Geez, sometimes I kind of still go, "Wow, that was." Wow. And you probably say that over overly to overly. overcorrect, is it? Yeah, yeah, because you have you have a presupposition that they are looking at you, thinking that this guy's foreign, and they have a presupposition because you right. don't look like a, a native Corkman. Let's say that. Uh, that's right. You no, know, he must. Yeah. So there's there's a lot of. I mean, that's just a part of who we are as a species. That stuff is always present in our communication, and you know that's the thing, Jay. It's a really important thing. It's really good point is that you know we have about first of all our our, our brain is just incomprehensible i mean we can understand bits of the brain but we don't understand the mind at all what the hell is the mind then right 
and we don't understand that. Who's ever but, seen um, a thought in surgery, right? For example. Exactly. No, exactly. Yeah. And we can we can cut up bits in the cortex and the neocortex, and we can look at this and the reptilian brain. We can look at all the different parts of the brain and the hippocampus and all this kind of stuff, and and we can say this is what we think this does. But really, it's like you know, it's it's just incomprehensible for us. It's the most fascinating, most complicated thing in the universe, right? But um, it's also very lazy. Yes. Right. It's a really high powered machine. It's just incredible. It's never off. It's going when you close your eyes, and you go to sleep. The thing is, it's still going, figuring out stuff. It never stops. Well, eventually, and that's debatable. It stops then. Right. But that's at the end of your life. But, you know, it, as you're living, it's never off. It's always processing. And so you have about 60,000 thoughts a day. Yeah. And, you know, that person who pushes their ear closer to hear your thing. That's a subconscious bias there that's been like, you know, pushed up to them. You know, so they're making that judgment in second, in split, you know, in intense tense of a second, they're making that decision. This guy mustn't have, you know, very good English, and they're pushing their ear towards you. And it's just a, it's a bias, and we have those all the time. And and as leaders, those things are, you know, are driving us. And when we meet someone, you know, as when we met each other the first time, my brain, as I said to you, is going, I know this guy. I feel very familiar to me. Yeah. And my brain's going to go, yeah, he's in my in bias. I like him. He's someone that I could have been a friend of, and I have friends quite like him. And your brain is just doing this without you even knowing it. Yes. And so you're in your in bias. But what happens when you go in your out bias and you say, that's a particular kind of person I don't like. That's the kind of sneaky person I don't like. And that's what happens with employees and leaders. You know, they make those judgments about each other. And then they kind of, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. They kind of live that out and they further increase the sense of like separation and a sense of like, you know, um, other and it creates all sorts of problems. And all it will take is a conversation to figure out, you know, I thought this about you and you thought this about me. And let's, you know, let's look about how we could think about each other in, in a different way and work in a more productive way. Yeah, no, totally, totally. And you know what? And biases are really weird things as well, actually, because just to, just to close out in the story that I was, I was, I was uh, telling you there, actually, if I go into a shop and I see somebody behind the counter that, that might, you know, if I'm in Dublin or something and the guy behind yeah. the counter might look like Asian or, you know, yeah, yeah. Chinese or something. I actually assume that the person, like this is weird. I'm actually unconsciously biased against myself because if some if that person speaks with an Irish accent, I'm gonna go, "Wow, that's weird," because I, 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 I obviously grew up learning. So like biases are so weird in that, like I'm, yeah, they are. I'm unconsciously biased against someone like that's the exact same as myself. And you know, it's it's, it's really interesting. And I remember uh, years ago when I was working in the corporate world, uh, doing a, a battery of. Um, unconscious bias assessments you know you're probably familiar with uh, dr banaji mm. at, at harvard and she you know she has this battery of unconscious bias assessments and i remember being positively biased towards you know toward, towards black uh, men you know and i was kind of going yeah. that's really weird like why would that be you know like, why would i be like that and but as i thought through it in my own background it's just i think you know it, it made sense given my Absolutely. own story and things like that but so so they are weird given the fact that I was, i'm sort of a unconsciously biased against myself so it's it's a funny sport and it's interesting Richard because I know you're passionate about inclusion and obviously you know I am as well based on my 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 background so even though we wanted to talk about trust I'm not I'm not surprised that we ended up uh, talking an awful lot about inclusion you know and I think they are they are intrinsically linked so what might be interesting to get a sense of from you Richard would be just leaders from history or people you know that either are very vulnerable, authentic, connected leaders that like to connect or, or people that are really inclusive leaders that, that, you know, that the listeners might might know from history or even if they're people you know yourself. Yeah, it's, in, it's, it's a very good question. And I suppose we have, a lot, we have a lot more leaders in history that have been despotic and autocratic and, you know, destructive in their approach. When I think of my own life and you ask me that question, I never really had too many really great role models, male role models growing up, you know, as a kid, let's say. And, um, and when I look back through history, I certainly have people that I respect. If I look, if I look at people that I respect, but I generally respect them maybe on intellect and their oratory skills. Like I, I loved Obama's ability to I love, listen to Obama's speeches. They're just some of the great, his just way of, of talking. I think it's one of the greatest orators of the last hundred years. And what he said and how deliberate he was and what he said, he was just he was just a great speaker, whatever you feel about his politics. Um, you know, he was just greatly. I thought I, I found him someone who was quite inspirational at the start anyway, but he, he was in a different, a very difficult uh, landscape there with the economic downturn. 
But you see, it's it's very hard to look. Obviously, I think Churchill was a you know was the right man for the for the right occasion. That stern, you know, and his language he weaponized language there by we'll fight them on the landing grounds. I mean, just the most basic use of language. I mean, I suppose I'm into language massively, so. But I wouldn't look at Churchill as someone that I'd admire as an Irish person, obviously. So, yeah, when I think about it, I often pause. It's a very good question. I'll tell you, and I wrote about this recently in the Irish Examiner. When I when I was doing my 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 systemic course, there, you know, a, a master's in UCD in the Matter Hospital, and I was doing my systemic psychotherapy four years of this incredible literature, which is incredible, difficult and incredible. And as I was sitting there in the class, I was thinking every teacher needs to hear this stuff about how to deal with you know issues and how to understand problems. And the problem is the problem, not the child isn't the problem. The problem is the problem. And this narrative idea about externalizing and bringing the family in and looking at the ecologies that we exist in rather than thinking about the problem being located in a child. Let's think about the systems that they're navigating. Perhaps the system is sick and the child is fine, but the child has to navigate the system. And it made much more sense to me as a, as a kid that came through a family that, you know, my parents separated and uh, my dad was dealing with alcoholism and, you know, it wasn't a very easy place to, to, to live in. And I certainly was difficult enough in school and manifested some, you know, bad behaviors. And I'd say some teachers found me difficult enough to handle and all the rest of it and could be cheeky and all the rest. But no one ever asked me, what does that behavior mean? You know, no one ever, they assumed because my dad was a journalist for the Irish Times and it was kind of well known that this family is perfect. So nobody ever asked me those questions. And um, when I was sitting there in this master's, I was thinking every teacher needs to understand this stuff to be able to ask the question. And I wrote a, a paper as I was doing that called uh, The Intersection of Systemic Psychotherapy and Educational Pedagogy. And I sent it to Trinity College Dublin, right? Thinking, I was thinking, you know, you're have Trinity. No one's going to read this. And I just sent it one night just thinking, OK, I'll give, I'll give it a shot. And the next morning, I got an email straight back from the education department, from the head of the education department, Michael Shevlin, said, I loved your paper. Can you come in for a conversation? And I went in and met him. And he's probably the first male role model that I met that I thought, this guy has got something special. And, you know, uh, and it was about, uh, first of all, this is what I wrote in the Irish Examiner, people who are genuine and authentic, like leaders who, who are really authentic, are accessible. Yeah. Why that mean in a hybrid world, like in terms of accessible, like what? So how might that translate, Richard? That's a great point. So, so being accessible, how might somebody be a bit more accessible in the hybrid world? Is it, you know, is it about being you know, obviously, if we're in a face-to-face world, it might be about having an open-door policy, right, or being accessible to... So is it, is it about, like, regularly meeting with your team, or how might that accessibility translate? Yeah, well, I think I think you have to be very deliberate in this in this, in this hybrid environment that um, people who are at home, let's say, and who are more... There might be some people working more days at home than they are in the office, and some people might be more in the office than they are at home. And I think being accessible is... is is putting the infrastructure into place that allows for those who are at home and in working space to be able to contact you and communicate with you and to explain what's coming up for them or what they're experiencing. I think that's a very intentional thing. I think good leadership is intentional. I think you probably automate it as you go on in your life, you know, and it becomes just who you are. But I think when you're starting off and, and I, th- I think it's a very intentional thing that, you know, you say to yourself that I understand that, like, you know, uh, a culture of trust makes for a meaningful environment. And if I open up myself and I open up myself to, you know, my colleagues and, and I'm genuine and authentic about who I am and but I have to get this stuff done. I mean, that's the that's the bottom dollar of business. It has to happen. But I can I can make it happen in two ways. Well, three ways probably. But we, we can, I can make it happen as an autocratic dictator where people are terrified coming to work, but they get things done, but they're going to leave early or they're going to be burnt out. Or I can get it done when people actually are highly productive, when they actually trust the environment that they're in and that they believe in me and I believe in them. And there's an opportunity. You mentioned this earlier on. You, know, you said about... Um, about, uh, I think it was about the self and about, you know, expedience or, you know, that how do those two things merge? And I think that in a really, in a really healthy environment, there's always the potential, not that you'll do it, but there's always the potential for you to, uh, you know, succeed or go ahead. If there, you know, if if you feel stuck and you're you're never moving out of this position, I think, which can happen in education a lot with teachers, you know, that uh, if it just, there's no progression, it breeds incredible resentment and, and, you know, loads of work gets placed on you, but there's no, there's no potential for that work to do anything for your career. So resentment kind of is created. And I think in a really healthy environment, I think a leader really cultivates that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Like the really great point there about, you know, the, the chap you were mentioning in Trinity being accessible. And then, the, you know, that's a very tangible way, I think, of 
of, of enhancing trust and inclusion. But in our first conversation, Jane, I have to say this, in our first conversation, he explained to me that his wife had brittle bone condition and died very early in her remarkable life. And in there, right there, what's that? Well, that's him being vulnerable and open and talking about things that drive him and, you know, things that really, and I was, I immediately, I was like so struck by how honest he was. And we're, we're great friends now. And I mean, we're really good friends now. And it's just, it's just incredible that, 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 that connection, because that's what we were looking for as human beings, was created by his being vulnerable yeah and it, there's a little bit of inspiration from it as well that, and there's quite like you admire like when somebody does when i experience what you experienced there Richard, i almost admire the person it mm. almost magnetizes me to the person kind of go, absolutely this person's really real here and well, then, they're real that's it that's the word they're real they're real and they're not putting on a facade or a faux person that they're putting the and that's what i always try to do myself because i know students maybe you know look to me or whatever when i'm teaching or when i'm lecturing i try to put myself out there and show them you know my life isn't perfect you know i, I get things wrong and we get and it's really important that that that's who you are because that's something that you can connect to if, if someone's putting out their best self all the time and talking about how brilliant they are and what they're doing and it's just going to repel people. Totally. I know. I, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And I mean, some of the practical tips you're telling us there are fantastic. Like, so being available, allowing for progression. Clear communication is like a, a fundamental. Clear, yeah. Tell us a bit more about that. I, I think it's a fundamental from working from just my own experience in working organizations. Communication has to be clear. And when it's clear, you know, and, and it's succinct as well. And it's, you know, and people can understand it. Uh, I mean, just... I've worked, for, I'm thinking about my own experiences here. I remember I worked, I worked in a school and there was no communication. It was just chaotic and it caused, spread so much, you know, conflict and resentment. Clear communication is vitally important for the health of an organization, right? That you know you're getting the information, that you're not getting bits of the information and that some people are getting, I mean, you can think about what breeds like a sense of like, you know, disconnect from an organization where some people are in the know and some people are not in the know and you're in the in-group, you're in the in, this awful idea of the inner circle, you know, and you see the people in the inner circle and then that's that part of the brain that fires, I'm not in the inner circle. I'm, and then you're ruminating on it. You're going home and you're losing sleep and you're- You're on fight or flight almost, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, well, you are. You're, there's your amygdala, your amygdala is hijacked at that point because you're being excluded so you're not in the in circle and they have all the information and they're telling you down at the lunch at the canteen or whatever do you know that we're doing this and that like no i didn't know that oh and so you're like i'm not in the i'm not good enough or worthy enough or valuable enough to be in the in group it's just so destructive and you'd have to say you know the person who creates an in group uh, you know an inner circle is somebody who's very insecure you know that's what happens they're trying to they're trying to you know feed something that's a monster that cannot be fed and the idea of having favorites and all that kind of stuff so clear communication when everyone is receiving the information at the same time you know and it's very clear and succinct and the message is absolutely you know whether you like it or not but it's absolutely clear and you know that everybody's getting that information that makes for a healthy organization yeah it makes total sense and that you remind me of a concept that that brene brown has you know oh yeah this concept of the vault you know it's got, like it, it, within an organization there's a vault like so the information doesn't leak out until everybody you know if it's not supposed to but until everybody gets it so like the worst thing that can happen is just say a leadership team make a decision on you know a, a new direction or a new vision what what can happen sometimes is you get leakage from the vault oh yeah what should be a vault right and then that's what happens is the inner circle get the information first and then the old group feel more out. And and like, I mean, I love that concept of a vault that really in a team, if, if it's not meant to be communicated as a team, it doesn't. And then when it's going to the organization, it's going to the entire organization, you know? And it's, it, it, it's funny because we, we recently did a small bit of research and communication came up as the biggest challenge yeah. to to uh, to trust for building in a, in, in a hybrid world. You know? I, I, and I think it is. And it's, it's true. In, to, in, to, in 2016, PwC did a global review, you know, the CEOs. And, the, and what came back in that is that what the CEO said is that trust is the biggest threat to, to their development. And yet they've done nothing about it because they don't people don't know, organizations don't know, how do we build trust? I mean, as you said at the start, it's a bit of a fugazi. I mean, what, what, what is? it and it actually really isn't it's something that you can be really intentional about but it's really about getting the right leaders in there you know and it's it's about training up skilling your leaders to think about themselves i mean it, it can only start and this is about inclusion it can only start from within so what happens with the vault idea is that you know when you're in the when you're within the 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 milieu of the vault let's say and you're getting the information so the person who's created the vault is vulnerable because they believe that they need to have these sycophantic people around them to be oh, oh god i can't believe i'm inside my inner circle here this is great i really love this guy because he, he sees something in me and and then what about all the other people you're excluding because of this inclusion but what happens there is those vulnerable people who are also in that vault go off and tell people 
people because they're a bit insecure and they want they want to have a little ego boost. Did you know that we're going to do this and that we're doing that? And then all the vault stuff is seeping out because the whole thing is constructed on an insecurity and it just it erodes the production of the, you know, it, it erodes confidence, it erodes trust, and it just collapses the system and it's just in chaos then. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. And it, I like the point you're making around the insecurity. And, you know, you know, we often say when we're working with our clients in terms of leadership development, you know, you can never become a better leader than you are a person, right? And, and I like, I was just thinking of that as you were talking there, Richard, in, in terms of like the insecurity. So like, so another thing seems to build trust. So it's almost becoming more secure in ourselves from the inside out is, is a key first step, right? Absolutely. I mean, we... Go on that journey. Well, the first thing to do is is really important. And this is what I always do when I'm working with, you know, in this this corporate space here is what I I first of all do is unpack a lot of the things that are driving you, the impulses that are driving you. And, you know, when you're between zero and seven is when like the subconscious mind is really getting written and, and a lot of the ideas that you hold, and this is like narrative therapy, a lot of the stories that you tell yourself about who you are, you know, you're, you're the greatest author of your life and you tell yourself who you are and, you know, I'm not capable, I'm not that good, I'm a bit of an imposter, whatever it is, the paradigms that you hold about yourself, they're going to go off and drive you as a leader. If you go, if you get into a leader leadership role and you haven't done some work in yourself, right? Or maybe even if you have done some work in yourself, but when you fall into these uh, roles and it's stressful, because being a leader is very stressful you generally fall back on these old paradigms you fall back on these default positions that are you know ingrained entrenched in you you know neurons that fire together wire together so when you have a thought it becomes like this and then when it becomes confirmation bias it becomes this massive pathway and so when you think something negative about yourself you're going to fall back on it and if it's a negative paradigm that drives you you'll fall back on it like you know and you'll find yourself wondering at the end of your career why didn't people like me how did people why was there such a high turn turnover rate when i was in as a leader what was going on there why didn't i get invited to that party why did you know you you start to analyze your career a little bit and it's probably all those earlier ideas that you had about yourself drove you in this very negative way so it's a very good question what what do you do first well you rewire you re what you rewrite you reauthor the story of who you are and what you want to be as a leader you know i'd often put that down what do you want to what kind of leader would you like to be spoken about after you leave your career what paradigms do you believe are getting in the way of this where do they come from? So you do a little bit of psychoanalysis with people about, you know, what are the impulses that drive you? Yeah, and exactly. No, that makes a lot of sense. So it's almost like sort of, as you say, unpacking what's what's in the in the head, in the psychology, and almost like saying what what of that is serving yeah, you, exactly, and what in that needs to be overcome to be a more authentic, vulnerable, sort of trustworthy leader. Really, exactly. Yeah, and, and like when, when uh, I often leave these conversations and they're very therapeutic and people are really upset, you know, and they're, but they're really, really healing as well at the same time. And you're really getting to some really negative stuff, churning stuff that's been with them all their lives and they, they've kind of buried it deep down. And, you know, and it's really important that we all have those. Everybody has those labels that they were given, stuff that really got to them and stuff that really drives them on maybe and stuff that really holds them back and restricts them and makes them not go for the promotion because they believe they won't get it anyway. So they live out this terrible self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, what's the point going for it? I'll I'll never get it. I'm not that clever. And all this real negative stuff that holds us back and turns us and, and makes us unhappy in our lives, you know, professionally and personally. And these conversations that I have with, with clients at this, you know, are, can be really changing moment. And we all need to do it. We all need this all the time. You know, you always need to have a critical conversation about your life and what's going on with it and what's driving you and what what do you think you can bring into it that might be more positive? Yeah, no, absolutely. That ongoing quest in terms of self-development, it does. I think it does tie together in that we can never become a better leader than we are a person, really, in, in many ways. True. No, I, I, I like totally where you're going with that. And it reminds me of the whole thing around your BS, you know, the BS you tell us about your belief systems or whatever. Yeah. Those are serving us and, and what are getting in our way. So, yeah, makes total sense. So if we boil this wonderful conversation down into a few key takeaways, right? And you've mentioned a few, and they're there towards the end. But if we were get into a few tangible hows, you know, how might a leader become more trustworthy as we move into the hybrid world based on the various things you you talked about? Yeah, I think first and foremost, what really needs to happen is that you're, the leader is very clear about their view of hybrid working, first of all, to put everybody to assuage fears. Because I do think there's presuppositions in there around working from home. And I think people feel that themselves and that drives them themselves at home. And they have to be present all the time online to show that they're working harder. And that creates, you know, it's just a burnout situation. So I think the organization and the leaders of the organization have to be very clear about what they believe 
and what they feel about hybrid working and what they believe about working from home. So everyone, everyone knows the playing field. I think how you develop trust is through the example of how you, you live your life as a, as a person and leadership and how you, you know, you, how you engage with people. The most destructive thing, I think, and this is what I've seen myself, and this is probably more personal than it is any psychological thing. The most destructive thing um, for any organization is when a leader talks about a colleague behind their back to another person, because then there is not even implicit, it's explicit that this is not a this is not a safe environment. When I leave, he's going to talk about me or she's going to talk about me as well. So then everybody knows that you're all up for discussion like that, in, in that kind of a, a dynamic and it creates incredible disruption. And I, I think it's, it causes huge churn in, and turnover in your staff when you when that environment has been created. And I think, you know, to develop trust is fundamentally about being authentic as a person, but who you are, you're, that you that you have your colleagues back to an extent but that you also, you know, you have to be very clear that the organization is the, is the thing that we're all, feed, you know, that has to keep going. This organization has to have goals and it has to change and it has to be constantly, you know, reaching targets. That's a fundamental part of business. But that you as a person who's leading this organization have ethics, have principles, because when you have ethics and principles, those things guide you when things get murky, when things get difficult. They're like the light in all the darkness. And if you don't have ethics or principles, you're all over the place and you're just malleable and you are, you know, capable of doing anything at any time. And so ethics and principles will light the way for you and your colleagues will see this. And when you're genuine and authentic, they will see that you're capable of being vulnerable and getting things wrong and being authentic, you know, and that, and that you can put your hand up when it's, you know, when you've made a mistake. And I think in this hybrid environment, it's about, as we said, about accessibility, being open to your colleagues and to hearing what's going on for them. And I, I would say a really important part of it is talking about what hybrid working should look like, helping your colleagues with it, because I think there's, there's going to be something like hybrid working hygiene coming down the road that people need to really think about, because, uh, you know, I don't think we fully know how to work from home yet in a healthy way. And I, I met a lot of it in my clinic. And I think leaders need to kind of set that up and, and, and set up conversations online around that. You know, what is, what is working from home like and being productive and healthy? Rolling out of bed and going onto your laptop is not healthy. And staying in your bed all day and then getting up and going downstairs and watching TV and coming back, having dinner and go back to bed and get up the next day and living this groundhog existence. It would cause a lot of, uh, you know, discontent and, uh, and just a really unhappy feeling. And so I, th I think there's a, there has to be a lot of intentionality around, you know, what hybrid will look like for, the, for your organization. Oh, fantastic. And almost as you're saying there, co sort of co-create that, that journey with the organization as a yeah. as a way of further building trust, I suppose, because it's a way of mm. helping them be heard. And and I don't think leaders have all the answers. So so tapping into the, the wisdom that's within the organization by, by, by co-creating that journey makes makes a lot of sense. But I, I think that idea of leadership is over as well, though, Jay. I think the idea, it's an anachronistic, archaic idea that the, the leader has all the answers and that he's passing it down or she's passing down her wisdom to you guys and you're just there passively taking it all in. Those days of like, you know, the you know the um you know the, the idea of the one person leading the organization i think it's over i think we all understand that for an organization to succeed and manage this disruption it's a collaborative process yeah exactly that the the, the erroneous belief of all the wisdom flown from the top yeah well it can't you can't you because you've got to be so agile nowadays that's just not possible i think that's it i think these these agile sort of float the work structures are definitely definitely the way of the future i don't think we figured out the how yet but i we're in the process of it i think we're definitely in the process of it so and then I think just to close out, you were talking about communication as well as one of the as one of the other tangible how tos mm. in terms of building trust. So just to close out in terms of communication around what can people do through communication to, to create a psychologically safe place? Well, yeah, I, well, I, I, as I said, to you, I, I fundamentally think that to get your organization right, communication has to be you know, your top priority, how you communicate the, the message of the company to the colleagues and to, you know, how it goes down into the colleagues and goes into the system is, a, is, is just, it's, it's just paramount to a successful system. And what we talk about the vault system and when people are getting some information and people are being excluded and every time you bring someone into your inner circle, you're excluding all these other people, that stuff causes incredible uh, distrust in an organization. I think fundamentally, if you're looking at like, you know, what creates a healthy environment that gives people meaning in the work is that, you know, excellence gets recognized, you know, that that's a really important thing that when you're working really well, you're, you know, it gets recognized. And when people are falling short, you know, they get supported, you know, not, not, not that they get like, you know, bombastic or whatever, but that they get 
they get support. Yeah, they get support. And obviously, if it's not viable for the organization, eventually they'll be asked to leave the organization. But fundamentally, that you can see that there's an equity in here. There's a fairness. If you if you don't meet your targets and you once were meeting your targets, that's when you need support, not to be you know criticized. You need support. I think clear direction is incredibly important. Challenging stressful environments from an, from a leadership is is really important. Setting up, you know, people like myself and yourself coming to the organization and talking about, you know, managing stress is very important. And I see that as a as that's increasing over the years. I'd get I'd get asked into organizations, and I often didn't go because I could see it was just a ticking a box situation. And you go in, it's quite lucrative and all the rest of it. But eventually, I was kind of going, I'm not doing this because it's just like no, you know, it's just tick a box and let's just get on. What what I've noticed in the last 16 months is that I get asked from managing partners. I get asked very specific questions we have a particular blah 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 of 20 year olds to 25 year olds what can we say to them to the 30 year olds with new kids what can we say and they were very direct and specific and i thought that's great that's a silver lining out of this whole pandemic is that people are taking mental health very seriously in their organizations and i think that has that has changed i think um sharing information has to be top priority how you share your information how you do that broadly that not that some aren't getting it and some are getting it that has to make sure that that's very corrosive for your organization and i think just you know facilitate whole growth i think that's an important thing that when you're in an organization that you feel that you know your growth has been facilitated that you know that there's potential for you and i'm saying that you're going to but there's potential for you to move forward in your career and when you fall short that there's a system there to explain to you how the next time what what areas that you perhaps need to look at to make sure that the next time you go for it you'll have a better a greater chance i mean not not all of us get everything all the time jay and it's how the organization manages that that stops resentment, you know, and I, and I would have seen that massively in schools because kind of everybody's at the same level. Everyone has the same kind of degree. And so everyone's kind of in this really competitive going for one little tiny little position. And it breeds massive resentment when someone feels that, oh, she got that or he got that because he's such a good friend with the principal or whatever. It breeds such resentment and, uh, you know, distrust and, and it's just not good for the organization. And I, I, as we said at the start, I think leaders have to show vulnerability. And that's not about talking about your personal life. That's just about being authentic. Being real, being, being, being real, real and being, being human, you know, and, and, and that's it. Like, and I think, look, yeah, and what you're saying as well about well-being getting more, um, yeah. getting more focused, definitely. And like, you know, even we focus on a, a lot more within our organization as well. And we, we kind of say like that, well, it's not strategy. That's the most important thing. Or it's not innovation or it's not feedback processes. At the end of the day, it's energy mm. that all organizations run on energy. And if we're not well, we can't we can't bring that energy to work and the holding halts, you know. And sometimes we just don't think of it that way, but it's 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 a fact until where maybe until we suffer burning ourselves, perhaps we don't realize it. Exactly. And and think about what really takes your energy and what really causes burnout. When when your manager is unethical and when they're incompetent and they're difficult to read and they and they fail to protect you that stuff causes incredible burnout because the energy that's required for you to kind of try to figure out where am I safe here? How am I going to be able to manage, manage and navigate this landscape? Because this person is unsafe that's leading me here. I mean, it causes huge problems. And when you flip that and you're the opposite of that, well, then you're going to allow people to thrive. No, no, fantastic. Richard, thank you so much. No worries, Jay. Lovely to chat to you. For joining us on the on the maiden voyage. The maiden voyage. Well, let's hope let's hope you don't hit an iceberg. Hopefully, no. Well, just we won't hit an iceberg at all. No, we won't. We hopefully won't hit an iceberg. And uh, so, look, where can people find out more about your your work, Richard? Yeah, thanks, Jay. Yeah, well, I, I do release a lot of my. You know, I write every every week for the Irish Examiner, and I do a lot of interviews and all that kind of stuff. So, if you you can join me on official Richard Hogan on Instagram, and I, I got a lot of my content up there. Brilliant, brilliant, yeah. And basically on the making shift happen side of things, it's it mainly LinkedIn is the main game in town for us, really. And I mean, between the making shift happen profile on LinkedIn and my own uh, profile as well, Jay Chopra on LinkedIn, that's where you can find out more uh, about the work we do. And it was an absolute pre- pleasure to have a fellow Corkonian uh, on the maiden voyage and uh, wish him all the best of luck in Seattle with, with, with his research over the summer months and hope he has some fun out there as well. And yeah, when I saw you on TV3, Richard, I, I knew we'd have a good chat. So thanks so much yeah, for making the time and, and all the best. Thanks, Jay. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks a million. This episode of the Making Shift Happen podcast was written and produced by Jay Chopra and Anne Mahler. Find out more information about Making Shift Happen and our producers on LinkedIn under Jay Chopra's profile, the Making Shift Happen profile, or Anne Mahler's profile. 
If you want to know more about the topics discussed in our episodes or reach out to us, send us a message and check out our article series and posts on LinkedIn to join the conversation.